Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Athletes. My name is Michael Raziel and I'm the host of the show where I get to have conversations with Olympic athletes, hopefuls, and legends on their story and path to the games. Today we have Roald Bradstock, the Olympic Picasso. Roald is a little bit on the older side, uh, which is really, really interesting. He was on uh, Team Great Britain for a little while. He went to the Olympics. He then came to Team USA. He's lived here for a very long time. Uh, dual citizenship, so he got the opportunity there. And he is also, as I said, the Olympic Picasso. He would hand paint his own attire to use at these Olympic trials, to use at these World Cup events. Um, so he got a nickname, very uh, rightfully so. And a lot of what Roald does is try and push the arts and the um, that side of the Olympics, and he'll get into it during the interview. It was actually, the Olympics originally was supposed to be an art and sport competition, which is just such a cool, cool thing. So listening to him talk about something that he's super passionate about, javelin, as well as painting, um, it's it was a very great conversation. I'm very grateful that I had that opportunity, and I think you guys and girls will thoroughly enjoy the conversation. So please, without further ado, here is Roald Bradstock, the Olympic Picasso. All right, today's special guest, Roald Bradstock of USA Track and Field Javelin, two-time Olympic athlete, born April 24th, 1962 in Hartford Heath, Hertfordshire, England. Roald was diagnosed with spina bifida? Bifida. Bifida. Yeah, spina bifida. Spina bifida. There we go. I'll get it one of these days. And hydrocephalitis, also known as water on the brain but this did not dampen his spirits to play sports. He was nicknamed the Olympic Picasso due to his colorful hand-painted art out, hand-painted outfits and artistic ability. Roald competed in the 1984 and 1988 Olympics representing Great Britain. He was an Olympic alternate in 1992 for Great Britain and in 1996 an alternate for the USA. He's held the world rec- he held the world record in 1986 and improved upon it in 1987 and is looking to compete in the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo or at least just the Olympic trials. Raul, thank you so much for joining us today. I sincerely appreciate it. Thank you very much. Great to be here. No problem. Believe me, the pleasure is all mine. So, Roald, if you don't really mind, uh, I guess, in my opinion, most story, best stories start at the beginning. So let's, uh, let's start all the way back in the, the early 60s, I guess, and uh, talk a little bit about your, the early life, uh, these diagnoses that I cannot say very well, um, and really how that kind of shaped um, you and your life moving forward? Well, I think, like you said, I, mean, I was born back in uh, 1962. Um, and, uh, you know, as I was like five, six years old, I had a um, real passion for throwing things. I went through rocks, snowballs, you know, apples, sticks, you name it. Um, I you know, got in a lot of trouble, you know, breaking windows and, and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, but I remember watching the... Uh, the 1968 um, Mexico Olympics and um, watching them a little um, 12 inch black and white TV in my parents' um, kitchen. And uh, um, I remember seeing the, uh, the javelin and again, you know, just hearing the crowd react. And, you know, I knew I wanted to be an Olympian at that moment. Um, I didn't know at the time, but the uh, Ron Pickering, uh, who's one of the most famous uh, BBC commentators, it was his ex, his uh, first Olympic Games commentating, and uh, he actually lived um, literally about uh, you know five or six blocks from uh, from me. Uh, but our, our paths would cross. You know later, um, his son would end up being an uh, Olympic uh, athlete as well. Um, but yeah, so in '68, uh, I saw the Olympics and I wanted to be an Olympian. 
And I can't remember whether it was but right before, right after, um, I was also diagnosed um, with spina bifida after my mother was a nurse. Uh, noticed that my my head was growing and and um, I kept leaning over, um, trying to stretch my neck out. And um, from that moment on, uh, I started going to hospitals and doctors. You know, every three six months and getting checkups. Um, so most of my my uh, childhood was actually in and out of hospitals, getting checked and being monitored. And and um, uh, so I had kind of two sides of the coin where I wanted to re you know aspire to be an Olympic athlete at the same time um, being kind of told not to play sports and to to avoid sports at all costs and to me I'm kind of uh, um, I think a lot of athletes will find that um, when you say you can't do something it's, it's more motivation and um, and you know again it's just uh, <clears throat> you know me even today now it's like with my age you know people were just I guess kind of given up on you know, telling me to stop throwing things, um, and uh, you know, I'm now breaking um, you know world masters records, winning world masters championships, and uh, and I just again, I'm just embraced you know throwing, you know throwing a javelin, but you know that that still um, goes back to the early days when I like just throwing things, anything and everything, and I do that now with what I call kind of made up records, whether it's um, cell phones or iPods or you know, uh, fish, um, a whole, whole, you know, uh, litany of um, strains, strains and bizarre world records that, uh, you know, some are very official, some are very unofficial and highly questionable. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, I'm having fun. That's that's the bottom line. I mean, it's it's we're still playing a sport, right? And I yeah. say we because it's it's really just you. Um, you're still playing a sport. So if you don't enjoy it, it's and it's not fun. What the heck's the point of doing it, right? So, um, you know, I think that's that's a really incredible story. How you were able to overcome a lot of that. I mean, I guess you know, throwing it, it's a cute story. Throwing sticks, throwing apples, and all these sorts of things. But how, when, where? was like the first time so you saw javelin i'm assuming for the first time in the olympics but at, where did you find the opportunity to actually you know put one in your hand and actually go ahead and and, and start chucking it well the first time i actually um held a javelin through one was in 1973 when i was 11 and so um, it, was a, it was a few years it was, it, it was a few well years after later, but yeah I, yeah but i used to um at my primary school um there was it was right by a river and there's all these bamboo canes. And I used to go in there and, and get the back, you know, steal the bamboo, not steal, but just, you know, you know break the bamboos off and, and make these pretend javelins. Uh, and again, pretend to be a javelin thrower, pretend to be an Olympian. I love that. Um, um, and again, so it's just, uh, but again, it, it was uh, 1973 when I first actually threw a javelin. And uh, if I'm right, the, the um, actually, um, smashed the county record and a district record uh, where my school is uh, in my first competition and I believe I mean as of even a few years ago that uh, that record still stands wow so you hold um, all sorts of records all over the world huh oh yeah and again it's just the kind of um, it's always fun throwing them and just you know uh, and again going back to um, you know just the, when you do these official records you know, everything's weighed and then re-weighed and then re-measured and, and um, you know, T's crossed and I's dotted and kind of um, 
that's all very official, which, which I'm, you know, appreciating. And, um, but again, that's why I started making up my own world records and just, you know, me and a friend of mine in the field throwing it and just claiming world records. Uh, to me, it was just kind of, um, I don't want to say poking fun, but having fun with the kind of the other end of the spectrum. Um, <clears throat> with things obviously not official. Um, and again, I mean, that was kind of uh, inspired by um, uh, my failed attempts. I think it was 2001 uh, when I um, broke the Guinness World Record for throwing a golf ball. And I followed all the records and I got a, a surveyor to come out and did everything that they wanted. And after a year, they, they hadn't ratified it and they basically um, you know, lost all my documentation. And it was all the original materials and you know, I, I couldn't obviously send original material again. Um, but it was after that that I decided to uh, kind of poke fun at them and just to kind of, you know, I have official world records and, and other national records. And so when I just started making up records and uh, again, just to me, I look at, uh, you know, throwing as, a, as an art form and, um, and definitely in the later years, you know, last decade, um, 10, 15 years, um, you know, and that's where now I'm, you know, painting my outfits and, you know, I've turned the javelin one way into a fashion one way. And the, and the javelin kind of expands from a stick, which basically that's all it is, to, to other objects. I love it. I love it. Take advantage of your platform, right? Um, you've been able to do that for a very, very long time at this point. Um, and I think that that's incredible. And it's, it's very smart, especially because art is something you're extremely passionate about. And that's something we'll get to um, in, in a little while. So as you kind of alluded to, throwing a javelin is essentially throwing a stick with a spear at the end, right? So I'm just kind of curious, um, from someone who's been in the sport for so long, you know, a little bit more than the next guy with, with the opportunity. So, so, uh, I always like to make sure that we're educating some of the viewers and the listeners because yeah. these sports, many of them, the ones that I get to talk to athletes from, uh, you know, weekly at this point are really just sports that we watch once every four years, if we're being very candid and honest with each other. So if you, can you give us a little bit of like a more of a foundation level? So that way in 2020, when we're, you know, hopefully watching you on, on NBC, um, in your, in your crazy outfits, uh, we'll know a little bit more about what you're doing and, and maybe exactly why you're doing it. Okay, well, the, um, as far as the, the throwing, the, um, uh, you know, you have, there's like local levels, so there's district and county or in England, or like, um, you know, states in the US, um, and then in high school and then in college. Um, and then going to that, going goes to elite, where it's, you have to qualify. In the US, it's a you know, qualification, the top 24 uh, will qualify for the trials. And then at the trials, we have you know two rounds, two groups, and you each get three throws. Uh, and then the best twelve from that will then have a final, and uh, usually like the next day or two days later. In in the UK, uh, it's a little different where they only invite uh, the top twelve people, and it's invitation only. You can't apply, um, and so you have to be invited. And from there, it's, it's basically a straight final. So everyone gets three throws and then the best, uh, best eight will get another three. Um, but in order to make the Olympic team, again, each country is a little different. Uh, there's, there's also a qualifi qualification standard, an A and B standard. Um, 
and then uh, you know, in order to, to guarantee to go, you've got to get the A standard. Um, they're allowed to take up to, and again, this may have changed, changes from year to year, um, up to three athletes, three throwers that have the A standard, or they can t you, you can take one athlete with the B standard. Um, and again, once you get to Olympics, then there's kind of the same system where it's, uh, I think about 40, 35 to 40 athletes, there'll be two groups, you'll get three throws, and then it goes to a final. Uh, and again, that's at another whole other level. So each level is, you know, from high school to college to, to elite, um, to national and then international. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, I never made it to the podium. Um, it's a realness or injury, but kind of, um, you know, I was always, you know, right there. And again, to me, it's uh, what's great about the Olympics is, like you said, is even though it's once every four years summer and I mean two years winter and summer but um, something very special about that uh, because is there's a little bit of luck involved and timing wise um, and again it's like you can just be off you know if you get injured or get, get ill or something you can miss your opportunity but what's great about the Olympics is you know being Olympian is recognized worldwide as um, everyone knows what that means you know you've reached a certain level of excellence in the sport that is uh, recognized um, universally. Absolutely. And no one can ever take that away from you. Um, one thing that I think we do not pay attention to enough is just getting to the games and being an Olympian. Um, you know, I think especially with, you know, every night updating the medal count and seeing, you know, who got medals and where they got medals and, and how that works is uh, very, very frustrating from my standpoint, because I think just making it is incredible. You know, you, you have the OLY at the back of your name for the rest of your life. Um, you've been yeah. able to make it to two games, which I think is even more incredible. Not everybody gets to make it to one and even few get to, fewer get to make it to two. So I think, um, you know, 2020, getting in there to three would be pretty cool. So just for clarification, um, are you trying to represent Great Britain um, in, for the Olympic trials or the United States? Yes, what I've done, I mean, I've, I've been in four um, – four US Olympic trials and four Great Britain Olympic trials. Both my Olympic uh, appearances were for Great Britain. Um, you have to choose one or the other. You're not allowed to do both. Um, so right now I'm going to be going for uh, uh, Great Britain. For and, the UK. and so because you said that one is invitation only, is there any opportunity to make it without a specific standard or could they invite no, no, you? No, you have to make no. the standard. Yes, you have to make the standard. And what is and, the standard? And, and, and to me, uh, that'll be decided next year or the next year. Um, and that to me is also something where other people ask me that, well, can they make an exception for you? And like to me, goes that defeats the point of it. To me, I don't want to just be, you know, the, the token gesture, the old guy, the kind of, uh, I want to be on the same, you know, level playing field as everyone else. And, and, that's, and that's, again, where the challenge is. Um, you know, just to make the Olympic, and again, you know, Olympic trials, you know, age 58. And again, I'm, I'm you know, there's been some people, I mean, I was in the, my last Olympic trials was in 2012. I came second. I mean, I almost made the, the Olympic team. Um, but I mean, the, uh, I think there've been some people maybe a little bit older, 51, maybe 52, that have been the walking events or kind of, but my event is notorious for, um, you know, very few people make it into their 30s still being competitive just because it's so uh, 
violent and so stressful on the body. And even fewer make it into their 40s, let alone in the 50s. So here I'm getting closer to 60. Um, and again, to me, I think, you know, mentally I can do it. Physically, I think it's possible. Um, but the biggest challenge is going to be uh, injuries and avoiding or limiting, you know, the, imagery, the, uh, the injuries so they're minor. Um, and again, I mean, there's a reason why it hasn't been done before. Absolutely. But there's also, you know, the reason why I want to do it. Yeah. Who says, yeah. Who says you can, why not? I mean, I think that that's just so cool. Um, so with just going back to that question for a second. So with the Olympic standard, so what do we know what it is for 2020? The Olympic standard, Olympic trial standard. Oh, the trial standard. I apologize. The, the, uh, no, not for the, for the trials. That'll be, uh, um, decided early next spring. Okay, but do you have kind of an idea? I'm assuming it's not like it ranges crazy from year to year or every yeah, four I'm, years, right? I'm, I'm guessing it'll be uh, around uh, six, six meters, like two, 220 feet. Okay, so that's and definitely... Again, yeah, just, just kind of looking at where the, 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 um, what they're throwing right now. So. Okay, so then with that, what, um, considering you're going to be trying to go for Great Britain with... Understanding that amount, that, that distance, something tells me more than 12 people can throw further than that, right? So then what, what determines who actually gets picked from that pool of 12? Is it whoever throws the furthest? So is it the 12 furthest? Or how exactly does that work, considering it is invitation only? It will basically be by um, pretty much by the ranking. So, so the start date of this uh, is of July 1st this year going through to the week before the trials next year. Um, what's interesting is <clears throat> um, there's a uh, little bit of drama right now back in the UK because one of the top throwers has just turned 17. He's number one in the world and he's, he's on, in the, his age group. Um, and he's, again, I think ranked fourth or fifth in the UK. Uh, he's not invited this year. And apparently that you have to be um, 18 or over. Um, anyway, I want to get into the, you know, the kind of the, the, um, the selection, but, it, but it's just kind of interesting where it's, to me, it's like the next, almost like two generations behind me now. And that's also another reason why, um, I mean, he could definitely be a contender next year to be a medalist at the trials. And to me, it would be, you know, what a great um, contrast that would be to have an 18 year old competing, being up there, you know, 40 years, my junior. And, you know, if I could, if I could be there and again, my, my number one goal is to get there. And then number two goal is not come last. Uh, and again, the kind of, um, but to have that contrast and uh, again, to me, it's the kind of, you know, finding those story angles or those, those hooks for, for media coverage. Um, otherwise it's, you know, it had to be the best in the world and breaking records and this kind of, um, you know, that's one thing I've also done with, you know, with uh, my art and is, you know, thinking about, you know, angles, you know, visual angles for, for, uh, for, for photographers and their TV, but also storylines and kind of headlines and, and their, you know, look at it as, you know, like I said, like an art form, but it's also storytelling. And Absolutely. When you, watch, when you watch, especially in the US, but I mean, around the world now where, uh, you see the Olympic coverage and it's about the human 
you know, the drama. And mm-hmm. to me, it, it's, it's theater. It's being played out and it's about the characters and it's about the rivalries. And again, when, you know, when I was younger, you know, back in my prime, my twenties, you know, I was so focused on, on, you know, winning and then throwing the furthest and, and this kind of, and now I look at it as I, I can, again, not sit back, but it's really soak it up and just, you know, see it for what it is. And it's, it's, it's theater, it's entertainment. Absolutely. And kind of, um, and to see, you know, again, it's about storytelling and about, you know, how do you separate, you know, what's covered in the media? And again, if it's, unless it's the very, you know, it's the, the, the characters or the kind of, you know, the drama or the rivalries, like I said before, the kind of, um, and so to me, look at it in my little world, it's, it's just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I love what I'm doing as far as throwing also my art, but I'm also very respectful of, of the sport. You know, my sport, I mean, individual sport, but also the sport of track and field. And I think just this, um, you know, when people realize that, the kind of the traditionalist and realize that I'm not just clowning around out there and, you know, showboating and just, you know, looking at me, whatever, it's just, uh, I'm doing something where I'm, I'm throwing well. I guess, again, I mean, especially for my age, but again, don't want that to be the, the factor where it's, oh, look at the old guy, kind of, I want to be it where it's, I'm still out there and I'm, you know, you're comparing apples to apples. And it's not out there where well, they let this old guy in and he's throwing a different weight javelin and just like, no, he has to do the same standard. He has to throw the same distance. He has to, I mean, that to me is, again, is, is a challenge. So Absolutely. And that's, I mean, obviously a challenge for everybody in, uh, in javelin and, and really in all Olympic sports. They're just not, they just weren't born in the 1960s. Most of them now, you know, I've been speaking to athletes that were born in the 2000s and the very late 1990s. So it's uh, it, this is a pretty interesting conversation for myself. And I mean, I totally agree with you. If it's uh, one of the biggest reasons I do think people watch the Olympics is yeah, the sports, but as I said before, we don't, we only watch these sports once every four years. And I think a huge draw is the human element, the storytelling, you know, what, some of these athletes have gone through over the last four, eight, 12 years. Um, in your case, 30, however many years, almost 40. I won't say that number too loud. Yeah, I won't say well, it too my, loud. Well, my first international was 1979. Yeah, look at that. 40 years. So it will be 41 years next year. So I think, you know, it, it, it's just that's the one of the coolest parts, I think, for everybody around the world is, you know, obviously rooting for your country and rooting for the athletes from your country, but then also just hearing about all the incredible things that these athletes go through. And that's really why I started this project. Um, the, our athletes podcast was to just hear from these athletes, the ones that go through it, the thick of the thin every single day and just learn more about, you know, what they have to and have and get to go through, um, you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly quadrennial basis. So this is a very interesting, and I do think, I mean, the opportunity to have someone, um, of your, you know, age and wisdom and experience going up against someone that's 40 years younger, that's 18 and one of the best in the world. Um, you know, I'm not going to quite say it's a passing of the torch, but it is just, that's just a cool story. And just seeing, you know, the comparing and contrasting and, and just, you know, looking back at you when you were 18, as you know, you already alluded to, and just some of those things I just think would be such a fun opportunity that it's, it's very unfortunate that he's not invited this year, but hopefully, um, you know, we can get some things. Yeah, well, I look at it as again, just, uh, <clears throat> I mean, being back, remember that at that age, you know, there's, there's challenges to go up against, but 
I look at it as, I mean, he's learning from this and he's going to be, to me, I mean, it's going to make him hungry for next year mm-hmm. to a point. Yeah. And that's, again, why I like to be, you know, uh, to me, he goes, get the best seat in the house and be, be right there, um, you know, actually out on the field, kind of mm-hmm. just, you know, you know, seeing it again, just because I've had my time and, and then some, um, but to be right there as, it's not just passing the torch to the next generation, I mean, it's now the next generation beyond that. I mean, basically, you know, 40 years, that's two generations, right? So, um, and to me, it's just the kind of, uh, you know, really fun to, you know, kind of ego aside, just realize, I realize my place has kind of, has, has come and gone, but at the same time is, um, you know, what I'm doing now is, has drawn a lot of you know, media attention you know, because of my, you know, antics, or whatever you want to call it, because it's so unusual and so different. And it's just, uh, um, and that was, you know, I think quite intentional as far as, you know, how do you stay motivated, um, you know, doing something where you know you're going to get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a, true. A friend, friend of mine, you know, David Thompson, the Olympic champion decathlon uh, back in the 80s, I remember him making a comment to me back in the 90s when he saw me and I was um, 34, 35, competing for the US and Athens, the World Championships. He just said, how can, how can I stay motivated, you know, to still keep training knowing I'm getting worse? And I always remember that because it's a very valid point. It's just, uh, you know, all athletes, their careers come to an end basically because your body gives out. It's just time to move on and just uh, you get physically burnt out, mentally burnt out you know, worn out. And so as I've got older, it's like, you know, constantly re, uh, reinventing myself and, you know, coming up with ways to uh, incorporate the art and the create and use my creativity to keep myself motivated. And, you know, knowing when I'm going to go to meet, I'm not going to be throwing further on last year or kind of I'm going to get beaten. But it's like, you know, but what if I did this? Or what if I can, you know, and I've been very fortunate to be able to you know, keep it at a very high level and, you know, and again, it just keeps going and I'll just, you know, I'll keep going just until my body gives out. So. You're doing a great job. You're still doing it. Um, you know, most athletes, 28 is, uh, you know, as, as you were saying, at 30 is, is a pretty, pretty old age um, for most athletes. So it's incredible that you've been able to keep doing what you're doing. And I mean, all these world records, some funny, some legitimate. Um, and I think that it's really cool that you're still able, as you said, you know, you're quote unquote antics and the ability to really just get out in front of it and put your face out there and, and your name out there. And, and, you know, if you can continue to do something that you love every day, you should do everything in your power to do that. Right. There's, there's really yeah. no reason why you should stop uh, if you're still capable of doing it and you still love it. And it sounds like you have both of those things on your side. So I think that's fantastic. So one thing I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, you went to two Olympic games, uh, 1984 and 1990, uh, 1990, 1988. There we go. What, um, I think, as I told you before we, we press record, you know, that I think the earliest, um, games that I've been able to hear of firsthand was 2000. So, you know, we're stretching back even 16 years past that. So I think it's, you know, potentially really interesting conversation to have. I mean, what I wasn't alive yet for either of those. So I don't remember (laughs) where they were, who won what or anything like that. So I'm just kind of curious. I'd love to hear your experience at these, you know, two Olympic games, what it was like. I mean, what was the first when you knew that you were going to the Olympics in 1984 for the first time? What were some of those emotions that, 
you know, just had just rained over your body that you knew like, okay, I'm, I'm going to represent my country in the biggest sporting event in the world. I think that the, um, uh, just to go back further than that. Um, so LA were, were told, I think in 77 or 78, that they're going to be the you know, 84, uh, they had the 84 Olympics. Um, I came, I got a scholarship out to SMU in Dallas in 81. Uh, so three years you know, before the Olympics, uh, I was already in the US, basically kind of getting ready for that. Um, but to me, it was, so when I actually, you know, made the, the so in 84, um, I, I just, in 83, I, I just missed the British, breaking the British record by, I think it was like an inch, half an inch. And um, I came out in 84 and, and uh, you know, smashed the, the um, British and Commonwealth record, got the 88 meters. Uh, I think I was second that year at the NCAAs. I won all these meets and then I got injured at the Olympic trials uh, on the very first throw. And uh, I think I came like fifth, I think I took one throw, um, I had to pull out. And uh, so I had to wait for a month um, and they were telling me that I had to get, um, you know, prove my fitness, blah, 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 kind of. Uh, and I just knew that if I did that, I'd, I'd be injured. So, I mean, there's all this drama and stress around it. So I just decided to, you know, it was a gamble, but just to focus on rehab and just keep my fingers crossed that they would pick me. Um, and again, this is back before the internet. And I remember uh, it was going to come out in the evening standard, like an afternoon newspaper in London uh, when the team was announced. So, um, so it comes out from London. I actually got on my bike and biked into London, actually along the, the, the motorways, uh, about well, 12, 15 miles. So I'd get, you know, get there a couple hours early. And I remember opening up the, um, the back of the, the newspaper and I, I saw my name, it was the first thing I saw. And you know, I called my parents and it was just, uh, you know, because they were very excited and stressed for me. Um, and to me, it was just, you know, 22 years old. And it was, you know, like I said, from 68 so it's like a 14 year kind of uh, uh dream uh, coming true um and then when i when i was there it was i remember um that was the year before two years before chariots of fire came out and uh, i remember walking out in the tunnel um in la and it was like everything was in slow motion and i could hear that music and it was like we're all looking at each other. I knew most of the other throwers by this time. Um, but coming out into the stadium, there's what 70, 80, 90,000 people, and it was just, uh, I mean, just you know, an unbelievable experience. I mean, it's something you can't, I mean, if, if you could bottle that, you become, you know, and sell it, you become very rich. Um, oh, oh man, that is that, that that's an awesome that gives me chills. I love that. Yeah, so so again, it's uh, you know. Los Angeles and it was, you know, um, a great experience and uh, my first Olympics. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to, to make my second Olympics in 88 um, in Seoul. Um, but unfortunately there I was, um, I got sick during training camp uh, the week before. I didn't realize how ill I was. Um, you know, I competed, I didn't do very well. I, mean, I came 18th or 20th or something. Um, but I just, you know, again, wasn't feeling well. And it was really, this is what, I think September, late, late September in 88. Um, I didn't really start feeling good until about January the following year. So it took, knocked me out for about three and a half, four months. 
Um, but like I said earlier, just the, that's one of the special things with Olympics where injuries and illness, I mean, some of those things, you know, are totally out of your control. I mean, you can, you can do a whole bunch of things to reduce it, and it goes, but there's a risk. And, you know, when the competition is only held, um, uh, you know, once every four years, you know, there, there's um, extra stress that goes with that because it's just, uh, you could miss your window for whatever reason, whether it's boycotts or injuries or, you know, whatever. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that can happen, as you said. You know, it's it's once every four years. You know when it is on the calendar. So you know, I've I've spoken with some swimmers and um, some sprinters as well, and you know they have their schedules planned out for the four years. So that way, when the Olympics hits, they are in you know what could be considered peak or optimal um, fitness to make sure that that can happen. But of course, you know. You know, what is it? Um, you make a plan and the universe laughs, I guess, or something along those lines where, you know, like just because you made a plan doesn't mean it's going to work or that it's going to go yeah. according to. Um, so you were sick for four months, you said? Was it like mono or do you yeah. know what was, was I, it? I have, I have no idea. Okay. I, don't know it's, um, I don't know what it was. It was just, uh, but I had, I was weak. I was just uh, really uh, lethargic and just, uh, um, and again, looking back at it, uh, and but when the training camp was in Tokyo, and I know there were always you know giant mosquitoes flying around, um, so I don't know whether it was something I was bitten by something or got something that way, or just um, uh, again narrowing time. You know, each year for the last few years, I've gone to to India, and I always make sure I take the malaria. I mean, to kind of make it overboard, but to me, it's just you know a lesson learned. And uh, you know, yeah. I don't. Looking back at it, I don't remember if if I took what they recommended, um, because I think it was I was worried about it interfering with my my mm-hmm. training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes and, sense. And again, it may have been you know, poor planning on my part. Um, uh, so anyway. But now you know. Yeah, I know yeah. it is what it is. But I think that that's um, you know even even if you were you know I think you know obviously in '84 um, you know kind of being selected did you have any indication that you were going to be selected in 84 like did you have confidence in that or were you just as surprised as others oh no no i I was very confident again i I broke the british record by um over three meters okay um, then yeah 10 feet so yes Mm -hmm. yeah i guess then that makes sense so and then 88 i mean it stinks that you were injured for 84 and sick for 88 but Again, going to the Olympics, being there, and, and you know, keeping that, I think, is just absolutely incredible. And even if you did finish 18th or whatever it was in 88, that still means you're 18th best in the world. And I would take being 1800th best at anything. So I think that that's absolutely incredible. Um, so thank you for going a little bit into that. I think that's so, so, so cool that you had those opportunities. And then you were an alternate for two games. So you were alternate in 92 for Great Bitten. Um, what was it like being an alternate, especially because you went to the games twice? Yeah, because you went to the games twice, it was kind of like what that's got to just be, yeah, frustrating or just kind of annoying. Like, obviously, you don't want anything to happen to the people in front of you. But if something were to happen, you obviously would then be going. But like, what is like, where is that kind of on the scale of just, you know, like being so close, but not being able to touch something like that's just got to be so annoying. Yeah, I mean, it's just, um, it's just very, very frustrating. And like you said, I mean, you don't want anything to happen um, to the other person, but at the same time, it's kind of, um, you know, you're kind of waiting there and 
I think it can be up to 24 hours or 48 hours you know, before the, the, um, the start. So if something happens and you've got three people, hmm. there's a possibility you could, so it's just this, it's very, very stressful. I think the, it was in 96, it was even more stressful with the US. Um, uh, kind of being, because that time I was actually, technically I was actually, I'd, I already I'd made the team. I went through all the measurements and, uh, but there was two other people that were, that um, were given the chance until, again, about 48 hours before to get the A standard. So they were still competing. And, you know, if, if they didn't have the, did, didn't get the qualifying, then I would go. And to me, I didn't know that. And it's just kind of, again, it's one of the reasons why I changed from, from Great Britain to the US. But I thought it was, you go to the trials, first three past the post are the ones that go. And that, that wasn't the way it worked. I, I came fifth. I was, uh, I was actually third as far as third person who had the A standard. So I went through all the, you know, the orientation, the measurements for the outfits, and then was told, okay, well, now you have to sit and wait. You know, the two other guys that beat you that day during the trials now have a month to get the A standard. So you just had to and, sit back and yeah, just and, and uh, wait. it was two, two weeks later, one of the guys you know, did it at a meet in Long Beach. Wow, that is a and, kick you know, in the – wow, that's awful. Um, so you essentially – you were an you, – you made the team and then you, it was pretty much taken away from you. That's the way it sounds to me. Well, I mean, it's just um, – the way, the, way the, the, the WA, the World Olympian Association, you know, uh, qualify an Olympian as someone who has set foot on the track. On the, on the track. So to me, because I never actually you know, went with a team, so it wasn't it wasn't like it was taken away from me. But it was uh, you know, one yeah, of those things where, where it's not you know a, a black and white. It's kind of there's some, there's some wiggle room there. Kind of yeah. It sounds like semantics to me, and I, I appreciate you trying to um, uh, comfort me, I guess, and maybe some of the people listening. But Roald, that just sounds like you made it, and they took it away from you. So. I, I sincerely that that is terrible. And my next question was going to be, um, you know, after being in two games and then being the alternate, essentially you should have made one, but then being the alternate in two games, what, um, why did you switch from Great Britain to USA? And it sounds like just because the you thought it was a little more clean, clear, and cut. Like what what exactly went into that whole process? Yeah, I mean exactly that. Where it was. Um... Uh, in in the UK in Great Britain at that time, it was the the, the selectors um, picked who they wanted, and it wasn't kind of dry as far as just the the who was the best. They would pick out who's the best that they thought would do best on the day, or I mean, who knows? And it was just kind of um, at that point, um, you know, I came over here to the US uh, in 80, 1981. So you know, I'd been there over a decade. And to me, I kind of felt, you know, just as much, if not more, an American than I did a British. And um, so I just figured that, you know, it, it was time to kind of change and just, uh, um, you know, try for, um, you know, another, another games, but with something that was more uh, clean cut and straightforward. And then I found myself again, like right on the edge and got to experience that, you know, um, kind of fuzziness but again mm -hmm. look at it as you know i could have you know that could have been me that could have been you know um 
there. But again, I didn't know what the rules were. So mm -hmm. having gone through it, I know what they were, at least at the time. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just, that's just very frustrating. But you stuck with the U.S. for a little while, if I'm not mistaken, right? You went to a couple more Olympic. You said you went to four Olympic trials uh, with yeah, the United all, all States. Yeah, all the way through to, to 2008. Um, and then, you know, London got the bid, uh, got to host to the 2012 Olympics. And um, come on how it happened exactly. I, I contacted the IAAF, the International Amateur Athletic Federation, which is our track and field national governing body. And I just asked a question about um, what it would take for me to compete for, for Great Britain. And that's just, just asking what the procedure was. Uh, a few months later, I got um, an email back uh, letting me know that I could now compete for Great Britain. I mean, they, they took it as a, a request for me to change. Uh -huh. um, so I'm like, oh, okay, so... Um, <laughs> Sounds good. Let's see what happens. So, so it's kind of by accident, but I'm like, okay. Um, uh, so that's why I ended up uh, where, you know, trying and then actually making the, uh, my eighth Olympic trials in 2012 when I was 50. That is um, so cool for your home country too. So I think that, that that has that little extra in your home, you know, that whole, again, there's another storyline, <laughs> you know, a 50 yeah. year old born in England trying to represent England for the games that's in England. I mean, that's, yeah. That and, is and again, and yeah. I, was, I was wearing my, you know, uh, mm -hmm. paint outfits and my hats and sleeves and shoes and, and uh, you know, um, long tights. Um, but again, it was, I mean, and again, it was kind of after 2008 when I pulled my first media stunt, if you will, in Eugene wearing, you know, black and white Olympic colors and then red, white and blue on July 4th Olympic trials. Um, you know, I, I came 16th. I mean, I, I, I came in um, in 26th place, basically in last place to enter. So I beat 10 people on the day. Uh, but I just got uh, panned in the, um, in the press by, you know, I was very heavy. And to me, they didn't care about my, my age and the else. It was about my weight and how, how absurd I looked and just the kind of, um, but I turned it around and I lost 40 pounds and uh, it kept me motivated to 2012. And my goal there was to basically do the same thing in Britain, but break a world record mm -hmm. and, and, you know, medal. And I end up breaking a world record, world age record and coming second. And again, almost making the team at age 50 and being the oldest medalist, I think it was in 86 years. That's awesome. So, so again, I, I turned a negative and a kind of, I would say humiliation, but embarrassment um, and turn that around to uh, motivating me and fueling me uh, to up my game and to kind of uh, you know, try something, um, you know, make it even even better. And again, mm -hmm. if I'm up there being competitive and, and being not just there, but now, um, you know, but being on the medal stand and breaking records, then, I mean, and that got everyone's attention. As again, it should. You know, and again, so now next year is, okay, well, now I'm, I'll be 58. It's kind of, you know, at this point, it's if I can just make the trials, I mean, that to me will be, a, you know, a huge deal as far as just survival. Uh, but also, you know, really embracing Pierre de Coubertin, you know, the founder of Modern Olympics, uh, embracing his, his philosophy about, and, uh, you know, about, taking part and doing your best and you know 
Um, and to me, if I could be the next year, it would be basically exactly that, embracing you know, the very um, essence of the games from the founder and kind of, uh, and again, you know, I'm going you know, to be, if, if and when that happens, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. you know, be, uh, you know, have a new outfit to wear. Um, but again, look at it as, everything to me at this point is icing. So it's just kind of, if I can make it great, if I can't, it's not because I didn't try. Um, and again, it's just like embracing life and that's the, the, the lesson I learned, kind of thing I pass on to the school children, other athletes or whatever, it's just, uh, it's about, you know, life's about following your passion and, you know, embracing uh, opportunities, but also recognizing that failure is, is part of, part of life. There's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just, uh, my personal philosophy is just, I think just if we, we protect our, our children so much. I think it's actually, you know, we do them a disservice. Mm-hmm. It's something where it's, you know, you know, we don't want them to suffer, but at the same time, as you know, as a parent, um, you know, I want to make sure my, my children are, are prepared for life. Mm-hmm. And, and if they've never failed, fa- you know, faced failure or know how to deal with it, then, and again, that's that's what's so so great about sports is it's, I mean, no one gets no matter how, what level you get to, you know, to be an Olympic champion or be Olympics wherever because there's no one that's that's gone gone through and and has won every single competition has never got injured. No one. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, so it's all those things where you know the challenges and the the physical and, and the mental, you know, focus needs and the kind of and those those life lessons you learn. So, absolutely, no, I I totally agree um, on that, and it's always it's always interesting to hear what other people have to think on that. And I think you and I are are of the same page where you kind of have to fail. Uh, you know, it's always like, I guess the, I, I watch a lot of sports just in general. And I guess, you know, one thing is always like, you have to learn how to lose in the playoffs before you can learn how to win in the playoffs, right? Yeah. Like it's always just one of those things where the team doesn't come out of nowhere and win a Super Bowl after not being in the playoffs for the last four or five years or, or the NBA championship after not, you know, making it anywhere in the NBA playoffs. You kind of have to learn how to lose. And then from there, you have the capabilities to know what you need to do to win. So I, I completely agree with you there. Um, so the next thing I do want to talk about is your, you know, oh, also, you know, if you don't make it in 2020, there's always 2024. I'm sure you'll still be around competing then, right? So why not? That's my little joke for the night. But, um, you know, one thing I definitely want to talk about is is the Olympic Picasso that you were given. Um, your hand-painted outfits, I mean, obviously you brought those up a little bit, art and everything. You're, you're very into art. There's a lot of different things we're going to talk about with art here. But where did you come up with the idea for this, you know, as you called it, stunt or, or, or antics to make a hand-painted outfit to wear during these events? Well, I think it was just, um, you know, again, up until about 2000, so like 10, 15 years ago, um, you know, I was an athlete, an artist, but to me, I was always struggling because both of them seemed so different. And it was really when, when I kind of found out that Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the Modern Olympics, you know, was an athlete, but he was also an artist. And, you know, when I found out what the original idea of the Olympics, for the Modern Olympics was about embracing sport and the arts and about the kind of that balance. And, you know, I had a kind of an epiphany where I realized that you know, the problem I was having wasn't that the fact that um, sport and art were different. It's that they're basically the same. 
and that they both require um and once i once i realized that everything changed and it was just uh i looked at you know athletes or basically actors and actresses on stage and they're kind of um you know acting out and they, they perform they rehearse and so kind of it's this real-time you know uh kind of reality um you know drama that we don't know the outcome and it's just kind of so when i started realizing that it's just okay well if i extend the idea about i'm a javelin thrower and you know, some people always talk about oh they see me throw he goes you're, you're like a dancer you're kind of like you're, you're kind of i don't say prancing but kind of floating and kind of dancing and twisting and i just thought what about you know just like you know so to slay about just kind of uh, kind of extending that to actually making it external so making it kind of um a very obvious statement that i'm an artist and again i had to get, get out of my um com you know comfort zone because i knew it would be you know it would be i'll say frowned upon but it would get a lot of attention because no one's done that before um but again i looked at it as just like with the the videos and making up world record just about being creative and having fun and and to me it's just kind of it empowers me it's just kind of it's a form of expression and to me it's just an extension of who i am and basically i just combine the my love of sport and love of art you know into one and to me it goes what's better than that and now you know, being able to do something and being like a performer and it's just and if i can you know, break records and and uh, and uh, you know create a platform to be able to talk about the connection and and that's exactly what's happened now. I mean, it's just like you know, BBC, you know, nicknamed me the Limit Picasso and CNN and NBC and everyone else has you know followed suit. Um, but now it's like you know, I'm now um, you know, became a member of the uh, Olympic Culture and Heritage Commission. Um, two, three years ago, appointed by President Bach. I'm now chair of the new World Olympians Association Arts Committee. Um, so it's actually worked beyond my wildest dreams as far as, you know, uh, what I was hoping for and expecting. And now the next step is really to, uh, you know, to find other artists, Olympian artists and Paralympian artists, uh, you know, creative athletes, involved in all the arts and uh and again it also ties in with this you know agenda 2020 the whole kind of uh president bach's new vision of uh, the olympic movement going forward and, and i'm f fortunate now to be right at the center of that and be the the olympic artists um you know kind of uh overseeing it and kind of central in, in that um in these projects going forward I, it's just so awesome that something that you might have looked at as just like a fun little thing to do can now spiral and, and turn into just this incredible opportunity for you, but then all the Olympians that you get to touch and, and, and work with. I mean, like, what does it mean to you that ha you have that much um, pull and say and um, what's the word? Exposure. Nope, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, influence within that Olympic and the artist community. Like, what does that mean to you to be able to kind of put both of those passions together, but not even just put them together, but to do it at such a high, high level um, within such an incredible organization the rest of your life? Um, I don't know if I was actually thought of it um, as far as uh, doing something like I'm doing right now with 
the Olympics and with other artists. I think I was just, I thought I was completely alone up there and, and this oddity of just, uh, I felt completely alone, bottom line. Um, I think really I got involved with Art of the Olympians, uh, which formed back in uh, 2006, uh, founded by um, Olympic icon Al Erta, four-time Olympic, consecutive Olympic discus um, champion. Uh, um, you know, we formed this, you know, these, these 12 artists, of which I was one, uh, that basically started this organization that I'm now the executive director of. Um, I mean, it took 10 years to find the first 12 artists. It took another 10 years to get to 29 artists. Uh, I took over three years ago, and in one year, I doubled it to 60. And that was really the kind of the turning point with the IOC when uh, you know, I started to be able to kind of basically quantify and show them the potential of this. And that's when you know, the appointments started coming and they started realizing that there was something out there and you know, um, and they started seeing, because I was giving them something they could actually, something tangible. Um, so to me it's great where it's, uh, again as an artist, uh, what inspires me is about, about creativity and doing something different and the kind of, uh, so I look at it as, as, again this was even before, um, I knew about the real history with uh, the Coubertin and, and about the importance of arts and the arts um, and competition in the arts for, with the Olympics. Um, but I realized that this is something that could, you know, could and should make history and kind of really kind of revive and bring back the Coubertin's original vision of, of the modern Olympics. And to me, it goes, that's what's really exciting now where it's, you know, to be at the very center of this kind of new movements and to be an integral part um, of what's going on and kind of, uh, you know, being a kind of a spokesperson um, for these other, other artists that, again, were spread out throughout the world. Um, but again, what I want, we're going to push for is as many as we found, Amigos, I, I know there had to be in the hundreds, if not thousands, of Olympians and Paralympian artists out there when you, if, you, if you include all the arts, you know, for music, singing, dancing, acting, um, you know, uh, poetry, um, and if, if you include all levels, you know, from the enthusiast, the kind of the hobbyists to professionals. Um, and to me, I look at it as, you know, if we can go out there and, and kind of find and kind of create a database of uh, these, these living Olympians, um, and kind of going forward, get them involved in, in projects, you know, during the Olympics, but also in between to kind of help promote the, uh, the Olympic ideals and the Olympic movements uh, and in, in a very unique way and do something that, again, um, you know, combines, you know, two universal languages. I mean, everyone agrees that, you know, sport is a universal language, right? Mm-hmm. But everyone also agrees that so is art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he goes, and to me, he goes, you know, but no one's combined the two. And I think what, what de Coubertin, you know, as a visionary, he saw that the potential there. And yeah, I think. For a bunch of reasons, I mean, it got lost as far as, you know, back in, you know, when the Olympics started, there was all this thing about amateurism and not professional and kind of, I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it was, it was, it didn't work. And, I look at it now is, I mean, with, with social media 
and with the internet and the kind of, I mean, you know, now's the time that we can, you know, there's a lot of creative people out there. And to me, it's, uh, you know, with 100, 120,000 living Olympians, I mean, to me, it's just, you know, do you want to tell me that there's one or two or 5% of those don't have, you know, have some kind of background in the arts? And if you, if you use that, then it's, you know, you're in the thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's, you know, I'm an Olympian. It's like, I, I think big and other Olympians think big. And to me, it's, you know, that's where as thrilled as I am about how far I've come personally with my own, you know, Olympic um, as an athlete, but also as an artist. I mean, to me, it's now, you know, how much further can I push this? And you know, can we really, you know, start creating this kind of um, you know, new community and kind of resource um, for the Olympic, Olympic Games and, and, and reach, truly be able to reach basically pretty much everyone. I just think it's so cool. You're, you're 100% right. Sports and art are the two universal languages. You don't need to know how to speak or, or do or, or anything. You can just watch them and, and feel and see and, and, and understand the intensity and, and what these athletes and artists are going through in certain cases. So I think that that is just a super cool opportunity that you get the, to, to be a part of and um, find ways to really help a lot of these athletes, but help all you know them in, on multiple fronts and making sure that they have the capabilities to pursue more than one dream. Um, and I think, as you said, with social media and everything, the, the, the ability to find these athletes could probably be the easiest that it's ever been. And hopefully, as you said, you know, one, two, five percent of them were easily in the thousands and the opportunities to get these athletes in places um, such as the, the uh, Olympic Museum and other, other things like that, I think is just so, so cool. So again, thank you for heading that up and being a part of it and really helping out these athletes, but also you know, just helping out the sports and the Olympics themselves. I think it's just such a cool, cool thing that you're doing. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's no, getting hey. exciting. It's just kind of, and again, to me, I look at it as you know, the, the, the platform we can create I mean, it's not necessary to, to promote sport or the arts, but to me, look at it as, you know, that's our uh, platform. I don't know if that's going to bother you. Is that bothering you, the plane? Okay. Um, so to me, look at it as that's our kind of hook, our platform as far as these, these creative Olympians and Paralympians. And when we go into school and we talk about stuff, it's about we're combining our passions. This is what we love and do because but use that as a platform to promote you know whether you like accounting or, or science or this kind of find find what it is that, that you're passionate about and and pursue it and you know again it's like we're doing something very visible and, and it's you know it gets a lot of media coverage because we're olympians and with the um the arts components it's it's unusual so it gets you know it's a hook and to me i want to use that hook to to you know leverage that to continue getting you know media coverage but you know really to, to find not just you know to to kind of talk about what we're doing but to find those those other artists out there i love that that's such a great mission um just to really expand 
everything about just the games, the arts, as you said, it's not just about either. It's about both and it's about helping these Olympians out. I think that, that is incredible. Um, so actually, if you don't mind, it's a little easy segue into the USOC um, Olympic Museum. I know that was the first conversation you and I had. You were going to meet with the director of that Olympic Museum. So I guess tell us a little bit about, you know, what you can tell us about of, of that and, and kind of some of the directions and what you see moving forward for that. Yeah, so it was um, what, about a month ago. Went out to uh, Colorado Springs, um, met with the uh, museum director, new uh, US Olympic Museum, uh, and actually got a, a tour around the, um, uh, the three-story building. It's, it's going to be phenomenal. I mean, again, it's, it's still under construction. Uh, the, the, uh, it's supposed to be opening, I think, finished the building in like end of March, and there's a couple months of installing all the, the, uh, um, the electronics. And I mean, it's going to be state-of-the-art, uh it's just what they're describing you know is absolutely phenomenal it's just going to be this amazing experience um so it was great that they they wanted to meet with us it's great we got a um you know we started a dialogue um i they they asked and i sent off um a bunch of ideas about uh, you know, possible programs we could do um in colorado springs and also throughout uh, you know, denver and colorado but also the u.s um, and actually, for that matter, throughout the world, you know, virtually. Um, because again, it's just uh, um, look at it as a way of teaching, um, you know, the public and children about about the Olympics and doing it in a very unique way, you know, through the arts. It's definitely never been done before like that. And I think just the opportunity again is so cool that you really get to head this project. And considering you've been living this life for you know a while now you just have this really great opportunity to bring other athletes to the forefront and other you know artists and athletes to the forefront which i think is just just incredible so uh just a quick question on that how can others you mean we have athletes that listen to this podcast we have just amateurs and people that just love sport um as the dog chimes in um what um what can people do to be involved in the olympic art movement and and help you but then really just help all these athletes just be able to start pursuing these dreams and really get in front of get in front of the eight ball. Well, the the key thing right now is is um, if anyone knows of any um, you know Olympians or Paralympians that that are artists and are involved in the arts, or went to school or kind of having any kind of connection, um, you know, if they can get in contact with me, I mean that would be great. I mean, it's, it's it's pretty easy to find me online. Um, I mean that's the kind of starting point, and then uh, there'll be other things that will be announced. Um, in due course, hopefully sooner than later, about future projects, um, you know, in, in Tokyo that we're, we're discussing, but also, um, again, like at, at the USOC, um, US Olympic Museum in Colorado Springs. Uh, but again, this is all, they'll open next year, so it'll be, these are all things being discussed. Um, but again, if anyone wants to get in contact with me, and they kind of, whether it's, you know, they, they're involved, Paralympians, Olympians, you know, but it's um, they're involved personally, or they know people. You know, um, again, it, it takes some work tracking down some of these people. And again, to me, I look at it as the um, uh, it's you know most valuable thing that thing we can do right now is is create that database and just kind of you know creating that community. And if if you know, this is going to be a a long term ongoing you know project, um, and obviously what happened is just like in. Chang last year when I was, you know, um, 
and artists in residence at the Winter Olympics. Uh, you know, going forward, we're going to have other projects planned. Um, you know, during the winter, summer, and youth Olympics. And uh, you know, so the more artists we have, and the more possibilities and opportunities, you know, there are. Absolutely, and that just makes the museum more incredible. That makes the Olympic art movement more incredible, and just just really starts to expand this. And I think once once you really start to get that idea out there more, um, and more people see it that will just attract more Olympic artists, right? Like it's a very easy system that's going to happen and it's going to work. It always works like that. The more people that see it, they'll be able to come forward and say, hey, this is what I do. So that's, you know, let's just go over, you know, you have photography, you have dancing, you have music, you have painting, you have sculpture. There's just so many different ways. And, I, you know, I obviously missed probably more than 50% of them just for that quick, you know, five seconds. But there's so many different ways that the these Olympians can get out there in front of it and really be able to put forward their work, not only as athletes, but as artists. And I think that that's just such a cool, cool opportunity. So anybody out there listening that knows of anybody of all levels that is, you know, on team USA trying to become, as you said, an Olympic um, junior uh, uh, youth Olympics, junior Olympics team, team USA, just the whole nine. I think the opportunity to be put in contact with you, which everything will be in the show notes um, to make sure that it makes it even easier. So they don't even have an excuse. Uh, to just really get that out there. And, you know, birds of a feather flock together. Painters hang out with painters, right? You know, musicians hang out with musicians. And I think just the opportunity to expand that universe very quickly, as you said, especially with the internet, is is very doable. And I'm very excited to be any help at all with that. And again, that's, I mean, you know, the whole thing is about visibility. And I've asked, you know, beyond that is about, you know, accessibility. To me, I want to be, again, it's going back to, you know, my nickname and, and being able to find kind of, you know, Royal Bradstock is easy, forgettable, but you know, Olympic Picasso to me is is you know memorable and kind of I mean, to the point now where sometimes you know when the media interviews actually call me that or ask me beforehand, do you want to be called like well my name is Royal Bradstock, but you can call me Olympic Picasso, but the bottom line is if if it gets the the message across and makes it easier for people to find me, you know, as we go on this kind of you know journey and kind of you know create this this new entity and kind of i mean to me then then great i'm all for it and if there's anything i can do i think i already spoke to you about one athlete that we had on the podcast cody fowl uh, she's a usa a team usa wrestler so she hasn't made the games yet but she's got a good chance to make them um in 2020 and she is uh, an incredible painter so definitely you know if there's anything to do uh to help you know, hopefully more uh, of the listeners out there will be able to do that. Um, so thank you so much for that discussion. I think it's so cool. And the way I want to end this is you actually did win a gold medal in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, in the sport and art competition. Could you tell us a little bit about that? 2000. 2000. I apologize. I'm trying to make you even older than you. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, tell us a little bit about what that was like. I mean, you, you won the gold in, in such a, a cool and interesting. I mean, just explain what that was and, and you know, how the competition was judged and how you won that gold medal well the um part of part of the original uh, um olympics uh there used to be an art competition and uh it used to be in five categories and it's poetry painting architecture uh, uh a couple of others coming offhand um but they used to have competitions and medals and they had that from uh, 2012 through uh london olympics in um sorry 1912 to 1948 at the London Olympics. Uh, and after that, it kind of faded away again, a bunch of reasons. Um, but they kind of brought it back in, in 2000 for the Sydney Olympics. 
and uh, I actually found out about it about I think it was about 48, 24 hours before the deadline finished. And I, I submitted um, about four sheets. There's about 196, 100 pieces of um, artwork, and they they selected one of my my paintings, and uh, and end up um, actually winning the USOC Sport Art Competition. So as the winner in, in, for painting, um, so as as the prize the um, for winning it, I was actually had my painting. Uh, titled Struggle for Perfection, which was a picture of the Olympic rings, uh, was actually sent off, shipped off to the Olympic Museum in Lausanne um, as part of the cultural activities for the Sydney Olympics. And um, it was then part of an international exhibition and competition. Um, I didn't move any further. I didn't meddle in that, unfortunately. Um, but again, it was, you know, so I'm basically, you know, again, two-time Olympian, um, Olympic athlete, but I'm also a two-time Olympic artist in 2000 for the USOC, and then also in 2016 in Pyeongchang, sorry, 2018, um, as an artist in residence for the IOC. Um, so again, I look at it as um, I was, you know, I, I squeezed in on the, you know, under the wire. Um, I just, uh, it became a... Um, obvious reasons you know, the, the, I can see why that painting won um, but again it was all kind of uh, became very complicated because that painting it was judged by the slide it didn't have the original and uh, the the painting was actually owned by a, uh, a developer in Atlanta um, that actually built Centennial Park and it was actually a big art collector uh, Herman Russell and so I then had to go through a whole kind of negotiating kind of drama, trying to get that painting back to, um, you know, to, so it could be part of the international competition. Um, but again, look at it as, you know, the, it was a great story to kind of, you know, again, very stressful, just like my, you know, um, being selected or not selected for the Olympics. Um, but it was also very exciting and something, you know, so unique. And again, that's where, you know, the old nickname, the Olympic Picasso, came up because, you know, I'm one of only, they, one of two people in Olympic history that have been both an Olympic athletes and an Olympic artist. That is uh, incredible. I love it. That, Roald, that is just so full circle. It does not describe, I mean, your life and what you've been able to do at this point and what you're still doing. I, I just think it's so incredible. Um, just everything you've been through, everything you've done, and, and the opportunity to call yourself a two-time Olympic athlete, as you said, and a two-time Olympic artist, and being uh, one of, as you said, one or two people to say that, I think is, uh, that's pretty incredible. Uh, and then also, just on top of that, being able to share that with other athletes now moving forward, especially with, you know, the, um, you know, helping out with the Olympic Museum, and then, um, you know, what, the, you know, everything you have and the Olympic art movement, I just think is incredible. So, uh, Roald, this was incredible. Olympic Picasso, USA track and field, Great Britain track and field, Javelin, whatever you're representing, you represented us and I appreciate that. And that's all that matters. Two-time Olympic athlete, two-time Olympic artist, as we just recently found out, um, and competing and trying to go for his ninth Olympic trials at the age, ripe old age of 58. Roald, thank you so much. This was incredible. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Our Athletes with Rolled. 
please check out everything in the show notes, his website, everything about the museum, everything about his social medias, and so on and so forth. I really wanted to push this one. I'm very excited again, as I said. We did, we did this interview a little while ago, and we're finally releasing it now, but it was such a fun one, getting to understand where he's coming from and really learn a lot more about the Olympic movement has been super helpful to me, but really hopefully, hoping that uh, some of the athletes take advantage of what Roald's doing, and hopefully, again, he makes the games. It would be pretty incredible um, if at his age he was able to make the trials, as he put it, um, but I think it would be pretty cool if he made the games too. So thank you so much to him. Please make sure to follow him and check out all the links. Everything is in the show notes. Make sure to follow us as well ourathletes.us on instagram ourathletesusa on twitter www.ourathletes.us and any feedback from me michael at ourathletes.us would be very very appreciated any athletes out there that want to come on the show we're very interested um team usa athletes uh please send them our way or if there's someone that you want to hear on the show make sure to send it our way because i don't mind sending a couple emails or instagram direct messages that's not a problem at all so thank you all so much and make it a wonderful day